The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Overall, we are seeing the continuing contractions in the housing market. We know why. Interest rates going up, mortgage rates therefore going up, more expensive to be buying your homes. But really, this is the sixth straight month. And remember, this is a November number, so it is quite backward looking, but it's the sixth straight month that U.S. pending home sales have indeed fallen. And we've got a great guest to dig into yep. really where the housing market's going overall, Paul, because one, one Rich Hill is with us. We're pleased to welcome, of course, his head of real estate strategy and research, Cohen and Steers. Rich... Once again, moon music on manufacturing actually looking a little bit better, it would seem, for the data. But the housing data, once again, really painful. Where are we in the cycle? Yeah, sure. Look, um, uh, this was an undeniably challenging year for real estate investment trust known as REITs. Uh, they were down uh, around 25% through the close of business at the end of last week. Um, uh, inflation is usually pretty good for real estate, but what is challenging for real estate is stagflation. So what is stagflation? It's, uh, it's an environment where interest rates are rising and growth is slowing. That's exactly what played out for most of 2022, where the Fed had to raise interest rates to uh, uh, combat inflation that was at its highest level since 1980. Um, so it was really a, a backdrop of uh, higher interest rates, widening credit spread and slowing growth that has pressured uh, the real estate backdrop. So, Rich, I mean, there's there's folks out there that watch the Fed thinks that, you know, 2023, we're going to see a, a peak in rates. And we, in fact, may even see some rates come down toward the back half of the year. What's the REIT outlook for 2023 after what was, as you just mentioned, was a really challenging 2022? Yeah, sure. Uh, look, we believe that there is potential for low double-digit returns in the year ahead. Um, uh, that, that's pretty good compared to the negative 25% that we had um, uh, so far yeah. this year. What is driving that view? I think there's really three things that we would point out. First of all, growth will undeniably slow in our view, um, uh, given recessionary pressures, but it will be well above trend versus uh, uh, prior recessionary environments. So that's point number one. Point number two is that um, uh, we actually do see a better inflationary backdrop. I mentioned that stagflation, where interest rates are rising and growth is slowing, is really challenging for real estate. But we see a backdrop where growth is slowing still in 2023, but rates are beginning to come down. So we would call that a stagnationary backdrop. As you transition from stagflation to stagnation, that's a much better backdrop for, for, for real estate in general. And the third point I would make um, is that um, when the Fed stops raising interest rates, and, and that will um, uh, likely occur at some point over the next uh, call it 12 to 18 months, uh, uh, REITs usually do very well. So to summarize all of that, uh, we think growth is on solid footing. It was slow, but it's still on solid footing. Um, we think a backdrop of transitioning from stagflation to stagnation is really good for real estate. Uh, and number three, as the Fed stops uh, raising interest rates, that's historically an environment where REITs produce plus 16% returns historically six months after the Fed stops raising interest rates. So yeah. altogether, we see a better backdrop. Rich, not all real estate is created equal, as I know you know more than anyone, of course, with your focus on REITs. 
we were breaking, of course, the pending home sales. We were talking about a consumer, about where one wants to live. But from your perspective, talk to us about the most appetizing parts of the markets that are going to be recovering, the bits that you're still not tempted to be going into at the moment. Yeah, sure. Um, so what are the sectors of the market that we do like? Um, we like multifamily, particularly in the Sun Belt. We like single family rental. I think your point about um, what's happening to the housing market really speaks to the strength of the single family rental market. It's uh, uh, Buying homes is really unaffordable right now. But if you can sort of rent the American dream, so to speak, through single family rentals, we think that's compelling. Uh, population migrations to the Sun Belt are continuing to support multifamily trends. Again, if you can't buy a home, you have to live somewhere. Uh, we do like data centers. Uh, um, uh, and we like healthcare as well. On the other end of the spectrum, uh, maybe sectors that we're a little bit more cautious on, I would, I would say first and foremost, the office sector. Maybe that doesn't come as uh, too much of a surprise from, from anyone, but as we figure out work from home trends and other trends, uh, it is still a sector that's pressured. Um, uh, and then hotels, we're a little bit more cautious on as well. So Rich, Caroline and I, we are ensconced here in Bloomberg's headquarters in Midtown Manhattan. And as we look We're around- We're offices here. Yes, in the <laughs> offices, thank you. And as we look around, we see a lot of empty office buildings in Midtown Manhattan. If I'm an office REIT manager, what do I do? I mean, I, I, it's not just New York, it's San Francisco, it's other major markets. Is there a solution? Yeah, um, so let me make a couple of comments first and foremost. I think we paint uh, office with maybe too big of a, uh, too broad of a brush. New clean and green office, um, we think is very well positioned. And I think you can probably look outside your headquarters and see that some of the newer buildings are doing quite well. Uh, we think, um, uh, 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 call it suburban office uh, is well positioned, particularly in the Sun Belt. But where there's really much more of a challenge is class B and C office properties. Those are properties that were built in the 1970s or the 1980s, and there hasn't been a lot of money uh, put into them. So what do you have to do? Well, you have to find a way to reposition them, redevelop them. Uh, there's not an easy one-fit-all solution. We've started to see some trends of redeveloping them into, into multifamily properties, but I think it's going to take um, a little bit of a combination for entrepreneurs coming in, existing owners working together to find a solution. The easiest yeah. one that people are talking about is redeveloping them into multifamily. Um, that's we do super have hard though, right? Like that's, that's not easy. Very, very, very hard. The good news is the land uh, underneath most of these properties, particularly in New York City, San Francisco, is pretty valuable. Mm. So I do think we'll find a solution, but it's really a question of where's the net operating income growth going? How much CapEx do you have to spend? Yeah. Uh, and that's why the sector continues to be under pressure. Rich, I find it interesting also, you didn't just mention offices that we pride you with, but also the hotel sector. Why are you worried about the hotel sector? Yeah, look, um, I think there, I think the easy solution is that um, uh, maybe travel is coming down from peak levels that we saw in 2021, 2022. Um, yes, business travel is coming back up. But one of the major issues that I don't think a lot of people maybe um, uh, unpack enough uh, is how much labor costs are rising. Um, uh, and to run a hotel, it, is, it does require a lot of labor. And so that's one of the things that keeps us um, maybe a little bit more on the sidelines. Growth is beginning to slow. That's pressuring revenue uh, at a time that expenses and labor costs are going up. Hey, Rich, as I drive down to the Jersey Shore on the parkway or the turnpike, I see tons and tons of, you know, just kind of warehouse space. I'm guessing it's all Amazon.com and all that kind of stuff. Is that business overbuilt? Is that still a good growth story? Um, uh 
some aspects of, of, of industrial are still a very, very good growth story. I think if you can find infill locations um, uh, that are new properties, that's very well positioned. But look, there has been a significant amount of supply that has come in the uh, logistics space, the warehouse space over the past, call it five to 10 years. And so if you own an older property in a high supply market, the, the growth is probably going to slow. Um, mm. So it is not a one size fits all market anymore. We're still very bullish on the, um, uh, call it the high growth, uh, high barriers to entry, infill locations. Yeah. And I think investors should be aware that that maybe some of the um, uh, older properties uh, and not well-positioned markets with high supply, those could fa face some growth challenges. Rich, I'm looking at your, what, $84 billion firm-wide assets <laughs> under management. That's not just US, is it? Because we're a global network. We've got European audience with us at the moment, as well as, well, maybe some Asian viewers staying up pretty late. Talk to us about where you're thinking globally is attractive in REITs. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, um, I, I would say we think the best opportunities um, are certainly in the United States right now. But as you start to think about other opportunities, whether it be um, uh, in some of the Chinese locations that are beginning to open up, I think that's interesting. Some of the major markets in Europe are interesting. But I think um, we do see the best value in the United States right now. Hey, Rich, let's say I'm an entrepreneur in the real estate business. I want to go buy one of those empty office towers in midtown Manhattan. Where do I get the money? Do I go over to JP Morgan and borrow some money? Yeah. Um, uh, so you're you're asking a really interesting question. The debt markets are, um, uh, I would say, um, uh, not frozen by any means, um, uh, but they're not they're not wide open. Uh, I, I do think there is capital, debt capital available for a high uh, for a high quality property uh, with a well uh, well uh, well uh, a good sponsor. Um, but there's also a tremendous amount of money on the sidelines that's been raised and not yet deployed in commercial real estate. Around 300 billion, uh, maybe that's about a uh, call it 900. Uh, billion, a trillion dollars of buying power once you put some leverage on it. Um, so the debt markets are there. Um, uh, they're not wide open. The easy money's been gone. But uh, I think it's a combination of um, uh, uh, finding uh, cheap debt capital where you can find it, and cheap is all on a relative basis at this point, plus some additional equity from the amount of money on the sidelines. So um, uh, I think lenders are being much more selective right now than they have been in the past. They're being very focused on what property types they lend to, but more importantly, making sure that the sponsor is well capitalized. All right. So my lunch break, I'll walk over to the local JP Morgan Chase branch. You can have branch. a chat with that private banker. Yeah, I'm a private banker. See if I can raise some money here and go buy a Midtown Manhattan skyscraper. Rich Hill, head of real estate strategy and research at Cohen and Steers. Again, eighty-four billion with a B. Assets under management. They know what they're doing in the in the REIT space. So we love to check in with them. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. people are just saying i'm looking forward i cannot afford to look back it was an ugly year i want to look forward to 2023 and see what the opportunities might be let's bring in kim forrest boca capital partners uh founder and cio kim again i think a lot of investors are like me when they just say uh 2022 is in my rearview mirror i'm looking ahead here how are you viewing 2023 here after what was just a brutal year in stocks and bonds Sure. Well, I mean, it was a remarkable year. We'll give you that, right? <laughs> and especially if you had any of the uh, former FANG stocks, they did not do well. 
or if you were into technology, especially semiconductors, these are areas that just have gotten hit. And that's for many reasons, but mostly, at least here in the US, it's because of the Fed's quick raise. Yeah. So I guess COVID makes you do things quickly. Your last segment talked about China opening quickly. Well, we tried to get a handle on inflation and any kind of growth oriented stocks just got killed. But should you care? Should you care? If you need the money this year, yeah, you, and you had to, and you were forced to sell, yeah, you probably do care. But you really shouldn't if you're a long-term investor, yeah. because we know growth will come back at some point, and computers really aren't a fad, and semiconductors are going to be something that companies turn to in the future to give them enhanced productivity, and people find um, computers entertaining too. Hmm. So it's not end game for technology. Kim, though, dovetailing those two ideas, the Fed, but also China, an awful lot of what hit the semiconductor industry was geopolitics, was the tensions between China yes. and the US, the fact that you know an awful lot of business can't be done between the two now. How are you looking towards that for 2023 as well? Well, I think it was the natural outcome, not necessarily the disagreement between China and uh, the US, but I think a lot of companies are rethinking their supply chain. And I don't know that everything's gonna end up in the US. I think it's really smart to um, make a more distributed supply chain because what happens if a continent does um, get shut down for whatever reason, uh, geopolitical disagreement, um, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, a large earthquake. I mean, it just seems crazy to have a whole lot of manufacturing in one and only one spot in the world. Hey, Kim, you know, really since the great financial crisis, technology has really led the market. Fang stocks, for example, but just big tech in general, has led the market, both up and down since the, you know, 2008, 2009. There's a concern here that as maybe this market begins to take off, maybe in the back half of 2023, that that might not be the case. How do you think about big tech and its leadership role? Sure, well, I think a couple of things. First of all, um, the low interest rate environment that we find ourselves in the world, not just in the US, but in the world, really has driven growth companies. And by that, I mean companies that traditionally didn't have to have a super strong balance sheet, were newer in the marketplace, and people were buying them on the prospect that they would one day grow into their valuation, right? That the cash flow would keep catch up. But a lot of these companies now are big enough to actually have profitable cash flow. Um, and I think some of them will come back because they've done great at convincing customers to use them. Yeah. Like, I don't know, Amazon. But others will probably never reach that peak because people have moved on. Um, technology is best looked at, in my opinion, as a productive item, right, that increases productivity, it's hard to understand what will catch anybody's imagination online. It is, just is. The metaverse, right? Yeah. I mean, well, well, we could go down the metaverse discussion for a long time. I quickly want to, really on the news has been, well, the pressure that's been felt by another key Silicon Valley leader and indeed one who moved to Austin and who's perhaps <laughs> been more distracted by social media than perhaps is car company. Talk to us about Tesla and about whether you've been keeping an eye on that stock at all. We've actually finally get a reprieve after seven days of selling, which was the longest sure. losing streak since 2018. 
Sure. I mean, Elon Musk is one of the most fascinating fascinating people on earth, right? Like, let's just <laughs> shortcut that. He's in space. He's in the next wave of cars. And now he is turning his attention towards Twitter. And I don't think we're going to be able to escape that. But it is a concern for Tesla. Are they a car company or are they a technology company? And I would say the valuation has to reflect whatever it is that you believe. Um, I, I personally think that it will come back that whatever he's doing politically through Twitter is tarnishing his image and causing a lot of people not to want to buy his cars. But also the US, as you mentioned, is kind of in a contentious space with China and a lot of his revenue has come from that. And it looks like that tiff between the US is affecting um, Tesla as well. Yeah. I wouldn't uh, look for a quick rebound, but I wouldn't count him out either. Always great to have some time with you, Kim. You go back when you're looking at the software and tech stocks, well, you're number two software analyst back at the Wall Street Journal's best on the street ranking back in 2002. So oh, been looking at this space stuff, for a while. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, much less history in this space as you, Paul. Thank you so much. Always great to have Kim Forrest, Boca Capital Partners founder and CIO. talking about the record output slump that we saw in the top U.S. gas basin in particular, how that antagonized a lot of the power chaos that we saw throughout the Christmas period, deadly winter storm as well, really perhaps exposing some of the flaws, whether it be the infrastructure, whether it be the provision of, of energy here in the United States. And well, one man that might well have been exposed to an awful lot of what's just been occurring is one Toby Rice, is president and CEO of EQT, one of the largest natural gas producers here in the country. And Toby, we know, and you've come on Bloomberg TV and radio before to really discuss the fact that you feel more infrastructure is needed, particularly in the pipeline side of things. But let's just take a step back. During this period, we've just seen wells freeze, pipelines fail. We've seen gas pipe supplies therefore completely plunge and cause this driving up prices. How was EQT hit in the last few days? Well, what we've seen across the country is natural gas production fell about 10% hmm. um, due to these freeze-offs, um, which is which is normal, um, and, and the industry responds very quickly. One thing I would note, though, is that the reliability of natural gas and the share of power generation, natural gas performs uh, in the cold weather, and specifically compared to renewables where they just don't show up. So thank, thank goodness that we've got... Um, natural gas flowing and, and keeping the but, lights but on. It didn't, during, but it didn't flow. I mean, to be perfectly frank, it also froze. There were, can, can, you know, freeze-offs are common, as you say. They're normal. But I'm interested, Toby, how you particularly were affected. How was EQT particularly affected? Were you benefiting this situation? Did you have wells freeze? What, what was your experience? Yeah, so in Appalachia, um, we saw about, a, a, about four BCF a day, uh, which is a little bit over 10% of our production uh, for the basin. EQT specifically was around one to one and a half BCF a day for reasons. Um, those issues are going are scheduled to be resolved by you know the next couple of days. Uh, this is all part of the the winterization preparation plans that we were able to put out. Um, but you know clearly, the the solution here is to produce more natural gas and have a greater abundance. And the key for us to be able to do that so that we can have some cushion in the systems when things do hit like weather we know it's going to show up every year mm -hmm. the key is to is to get more natural gas production and we need more pipeline infrastructure so that we can create the industrial capacity that this country needs to run because what you're seeing across the board is our industry is pretty much redlining the limited infrastructure that we have right now 
and that's really um, making performance absolutely critical. It would be great if we could have some some relief, and that relief will come from building more pipeline infrastructure. All right, so Toby, in addition to building more capacity, there are a lot of folks saying more investment needs to be done to improve the weatherization of the existing infrastructure if we assume that we're going to have more extreme weather events going forward. So it's not just more production, but it's better, more robust production and infrastructure. How do you respond to that? Well, I think the, I think you can look at places like New England, uh, which is a really great example of the shortfalls that we have with our energy systems here in America. You know, we have uh, the biggest gas field in the world literally a couple hundred miles away from New England, but they are burning you know, oil to generate their electricity. About 30% of their electricity this past few days has come from oil. Yeah. Um, and only 21% of that electricity is coming from natural gas. The solution there is very simple. It's build more pipeline infrastructure so we can connect you know, our low cost, uh, very responsibly produced natural gas with the demand centers. And you see uh, the, the lack of, of infrastructure is the reason why you have prices in different parts of the country, like New England, where their energy prices are gonna be over $20 this winter, and we'll be selling that same gas here in Appalachia for a cost of $5. Um, these are the really remarkable things. If you wanna focus on correcting the issue, it's getting more pipeline infrastructure, and this industry will continue to find ways to make our energy that we produce more reliable through the winterization efforts that are, are largely already in place. All right, given the pipeline issue is an ongoing issue we see with between the government and industry and the marketplace in general, give us a sense where we are now, Toby, with that argument here. Uh, is there a better, do you have a better platform to go to certain regulators in certain states to say we really need more investment here? Here's what's changed with the conversation in 2022. Um, you know, the, the heading into 2022, the when people think about energy, the number one thing that people are thinking about is the impact on emissions. Um, you know, EQT, we put out our plan to unleash US LNG, which will be the biggest green initiative on the planet. But what 2022 has really shown us is that energy security is absolutely critical, just as important. And you can look at what's happening in Europe as an example of what happens when energy security um, slips away. And the conversation about energy transition, um, it's really important for people to understand it's going to be impossible to transition if you don't have energy security. Yeah. And that's what natural gas brings to the table. It brings both energy security and it also is the key to lowering emissions around the world. And so uh, with this new perspective, coupled with the fact that now Americans are facing much higher energy bills because yeah. of this lack of pipeline infrastructure. You know, that's another thing that's changed is people, Americans are actually feeling the brunt of this. If these energy prices are unnecessary yeah. and there's things that we can do about it. And it's as simple as building more pipeline I mean, infrastructure. To your point, Toby, wholesale power prices surged more than 6,000% in certain parts of the country over this crisis. I'm, I'm interested in whether you, whether did EQT benefit from the higher spot prices? So we sell some of our product on on spot, but you know we've been saying we've been jumping up and down for the last year, saying these high energy prices are completely unnecessary, yeah. and we would like to see more pipeline infrastructure so we can add supply, um, so that we can combat these high prices. Now it's absolutely amazing that we are sitting in the biggest gas field in the world, EQT, and we cannot grow production because we do not have access to more pipeline capacity. That is the root cause of the issue, and that's where 
people need to focus is what can we do to get more pipeline infrastructure so we can get the cheapest, most reliable, cleanest produced energy in the world onto the playing field. And that really is, is the focus. Toby, Texas last year had some issues. Talk to us about the Texas grid and just had the Texas gas market, uh, their infrastructure there. Have they made some changes over the last couple of years, some, uh, some upgrades perhaps in terms of the weatherization? Yeah, one of the biggest issues that they faced during the, the winter storm, Yuri, was that some of the compressor stations, uh, which rely on electricity, um, those compressors move natural gas to the actual power plants, were not deemed as, as critical, um, which is an oversight, and um, that's what had electricity to get shut off. That was something that was fixed, and I think you can look at Texas' performance of natural gas uh, on the grid these past week, and you will see very strong performance of natural gas down there in Texas. Um, other places that have really struggled to provide the reliability, you're seeing this with utilities across the country, yeah. you know, warning and telling people to pinch back their energy needs. It's because we have lack of energy flowing into those areas and that energy can only flow if we have more pipeline infrastructure. We've got the biggest gas field in the world in Appalachia. We just need more infrastructure, more infrastructure to connect this with the demands that we know is gonna continue. And to Toby, grow. I mean, loud and clear, we hear your call. <laughs> you want more infrastructure in terms of pipelines. But just re go back and we'll end where we started. The weatherization, you said, of course, there were elements that, you know, a lot of, there was a lot of depleted run rate, but I'm, did the well, why did so many wells freeze in and of themselves? If you say that weatherization is already sort of on its route and being invested in. Well, freeze-offs happen because when we produce this energy out of the ground, it's a mixture of natural gas, water, and, and also water vapor. Um, you couple that with some of the pressure changes, and it, it, it creates freezing temperatures, and that creates some ice blockages in the pipes. Um, these are things that can be can be solved um, through drying out some of the some of the, the the equipment that we the gas that we have flowing through. Um, and then also making sure we have some line heaters in place. So these are all things that, that we've been dealing with uh, mm -hmm. for years. We have tools and techniques to combat that. And Which is kind of nuts. Why, record, why, why therefore did so many freeze if it's been... Yeah, and, and, and another thing is that that's, that's important is when we have winter storms, um, you know, we need to get water trucks to our location so uh -huh. that we can empty the produce water tanks. And when the roads get icy and shut down, mm -hmm. it gets hard for us to get water trucks out there to that location. And that means we have to shut in production, not because of freeze-offs, but because mm. we don't have the ability to produce any more water on location. So it's just a little bit of time to get the dozers out and, and get the roads taken mm. care of. You know, safety is our number one priority. And all of these things are, are temporary. And like I said, you know, we're going to have yep. these resolved in the next couple yep. days. All right, Toby, great stuff. Really appreciate you taking the time to walk us through that. Toby Rice, EQT president and CEO. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. As we march towards the close of trade in Europe, we have about 30 minutes left. And
looks as though we're still seeing some little bit of bid into German debt markets, but overall we are seeing a little bit of nervousness when it comes to the overall equity market, and the Stocks 50 is currently off by six-tenths of percent. Let's talk about the ECB, about some of the worries in the European economy, about the outlook for 2023, with one Jens Eisenschmidt. He is Chief European Economist at Morgan Stanley. He comes to us on vacation, yes, but very kindly turns on his terminal, checks in on his emails, and joins us live. We thank you so much, Jens. Happy in between the Christmas festivities and New Year across Europe. And just tell us a little bit about whether you are gathering around your family tables and being peppered with questions as to whether 2023 is going to be as bad as 2022. Yeah, thank, thanks a lot for, for the kind words. And indeed, uh, it's it's always the time, this time of the year, when uh, when we economists and our families probably are getting getting uh, tough questions in terms of what's going to be like next year. And uh, now my other leg of the family, my, my wife is Spanish, so it's in Spain. So typically I get a whole host of questions also on Spain. Um, you know, um, first time I got tough questions was around the, 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 the housing crisis here in Spain mm -hmm. or the banking crisis, if you want. That was 07, 08, and I was of the firm view that house prices um, are unsustainably high. That didn't get me a lot of uh, let's say, um, sympathy around uh, the Christmas table, but it turned out to be right. Uh, now, this year, I'd say uh, Spain, at least in a, according to our forecast, is probably doing relatively well within the set of countries um, that, that, that form the euro area, where Germany is probably the laggard. Um, we are looking for um, a recession, a mild one. Um, in terms of overall year-on-year -year growth numbers, 23, we think it's 0.2, which is a slightly, slightly a, a tad above consensus. It's, a, it's, it's slightly below what the ECB recently has been saying in their expectation 23 will look like. Um, but, you know, I think that the, the main point here is that the, the short-term dynamic is pretty much well telegraphed. So we are looking, all of us, all professional forecasters, including the ECB, are looking for a contraction in Q4 which is uh, within the PMIs, and it's also looking like the, the latest release of hard data are confirming that, uh, another contraction quarterly in Q1, and then uh, the debate starts. Is the recovery relatively strong, or is it more muted? We think it will be more muted. For instance, the ECB thinks it will be much stronger, uh, and that has been probably one of the key ingredients in their relatively strong uh, rhetoric uh, at their last meeting in terms of where rates have to go. Hey, Jens, here in the U.S., as people think about different scenarios for a potential recession in 23, we do have the backdrop that the consumer's in pretty good shape. Unemployment's uh, at or near historic lows. Consumer retail sales continue to be pretty decent here. Give us a sense in Europe how, that, how the consumer is faring right now. What's the outlook for the consumer as we head into 23? Yes, so I think this is a key question also for us here, right? I mean, first of all, clearly, the consumer uh, side of the economy is not as strong as in the US. That's historically always been the case. So it's, uh, it's, it's still a very important part of GDP, but just not as high as in the US. That's one. Second, uh, we have seen lots of impact on, on, on things like consumer confidence surveys already since the start of the war in, uh, in February. But a lot of that hasn't materialized so far. So for instance, the Q3 growth numbers the last we have for the euro area um, have been particularly strong uh, and driven by consumption. Now, the debate is on whether that is actually a, a reflection of the fiscal spillovers um, or whether this is still, um, you know, COVID reopening dynamics plus excess savings. I mean, there are elements of all these in there. 
Uh, but it's clearly the case that the consumption and on our and our expectation, and you know, if you look at data, it's 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 very difficult to deny that there is weakness to come, and that is essentially the backdrop of our growth expectation of all weak growth expectation. That essentially the hit to real disposable incomes coming through inflation uh, will be such that consumption will take a big hit. Okay, it's interesting because we had Charles de Bassesson from Societe Generale on yesterday talking about he thought maybe that would be the wild card of 2023, that the consumer would be more strong, stronger than anticipated in 2023 for Europe. And interesting to hear your counterpoint to that. And I wonder, therefore, what what for you might be the upside risk here? What might be something that comes in that's better? You know, we hear about a slowing of inflation. We hear about the ECB managing to understand the impact of that. But are, is there any way that you think some of the energy markets might be aimed better than expected with Russia, Ukraine being the ultimate wild card for the entire year? So, I mean, it's, it's, it's good to sort of go back a little bit in time, say, uh, around middle of uh, this year, uh, when essentially... Um, it became increasingly clear that uh, Russia would uh, turn off the gas supply um, in an increasingly aggressive way. Uh, then during summer, we have seen huge increases in, in natural gas prices in the in the euro area. And of course, extrapolating that and, and, and associated with that increases in, in electricity prices. And we have seen this for the first time actually in years that for one or two years out in the future space, uh, electricity and natural gas were trading really at very high prices. Lots of clients raising the question whether that, you know, what is the future of Europe's industrial base given these prices? So this is the, you know, the backdrop in the summer. Now, of course, against this or relative to this backdrop, uh, things have improved markedly. Uh, so I think this whole spectra of um, rationing of uh, energy, electricity, that has vanished. Um, so we have seen a significant drop in both oil and gas prices. Um, now, the consumer tends to be at this stage protected, uh, depending on the country a little bit, by, by, by significant fiscal measures. And I would say, I would characterize as this is the biggest upside risk in the short term, in the near term. Now, in the medium term, we have this thing that, of course, relative to summer, uh, the energy backdrop looks better. Um, but monetary policy, for instance, looks decisively more aggressive. Yeah. Um, so in, in that sense, I would say in the short term, there's very little you can uh, you, you can think of, I mean, take away from the dynamic that you have that essentially consumers are hit by these huge inflation rates and that, that eats into disposable income and that must do something to consumption. Uh, there is a little bit of an element of if there's a fiscal spillover, it's more fiscal than maybe is needed then you get a bit of a boost to consumption. But overall, the, the outlook is relatively muted. And then the discussion, as I said before, is really focusing into is the energy uh, side giving way, uh, having you know, essentially a better, better outlook and better prices. Is this you know, dominating or is really the fiscal, uh, sorry, the monetary policy response dominating it here? Hey, Jen, in just, terms of attractive growth. Sorry. Yep. Yeah. Just in the last few days, uh, a big, big change uh, in China zero COVID dropped, uh, seemed to be reopening extraordinarily quickly. That's got to be good news for that European industrial base. I'm thinking about, you know, our good friends in Munich at Siemens. They're going to be feeling pretty good this morning as, as in this afternoon as they think about their opportunities in China. How does that factor into your outlook? 
So uh, we have been looking into this in terms of scenario analysis and looking into uh, elasticities there. Of course, uh, we've been in touch with our China team uh, on this one. So when we were producing at Morgan Stanley our global outlook and, uh, you know, Robin was one of those that were relatively early and actually they are now above consensus with their call in terms of growth for 23. And they were relatively early in calling for reopening uh, happening. Now, what happened there is that um, the, I mean, if you were looking closer in terms of A, what would be the new sources of growth in China, it's, it's a bit more domestically oriented affair, A, and B, uh, elasticities are, are not as near, nowhere near as big that we would sort of get a huge impact from that. Having said that, of course, it's a positive, but it's really not, not a game changer uh, in, in, in the sort of generalized state of affairs where we see a drag on growth coming from these two sources, which is consumption and investment weakness. Jens, I've got some recency bias, and you can hear it in my voice, that I haven't been in Spain for my holidays, but I was back <laughs> in the UK. Talk to us a little bit about the strikes. The, for me, there was a sense of just lack of hope coming from various members of my family in the United Kingdom. What do you see from an economic perspective at the moment? So the UK for us is clearly, if you sort of look at the European uh, specter uh, of things, is clearly the, the country uh, lagging things most, um, si simply because, you know, it has essentially the worst of all worlds and it combines, of course, the same sources of degrowth, if you want, investment weakness and consumption weakness. And, you know, again, here against sky high inflation rates um, and, and you know, very sort of, you know, not, not very significant or not, not very high wage gains uh, that can can sort of uh, go against it. Plus, of course, you have this additional tightening coming in through um, the bond market and here uh, the, the mortgage market. So all in all, uh, we see this economy uh, shrinking by more than the euro area economy, um, and you know the recovery being even more lackluster uh, than 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 here on the in the euro area continent. So yeah, in that sense, it's indeed a little bit of a sign of. Uh, lots of structural reforms needed um, and uh, lots, lots of more adjustment needs to come. And of course, the labor market here doesn't really help, right? I mean, and I guess it's also a question of, of migration. How much migration can you get into your labor market? And I think here, continental European labor markets are better, uh, better placed uh, to, to, to sort of get, get through tight, uh, tight <clears throat> moments or moments of tightness, right. to say. All right, Jens, great stuff. Really appreciate you taking the time, particularly on your holiday. Uh, you get a gold, a gold star for that. Jens Eisenschmidt, Chief European Economist uh, for Morgan Stanley. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.